believers, as the church today, I think this is a, a real weakness for us. We're not real great at knowing what we believe or why we believe it. Luke is saying, here are the things and here are the reasons. I've investigated it. I've checked it out. Here's the evidence. This is a trustworthy telling. And I've talked to the people who were there. I wasn't there, but I know the people who were. We've seen these things happen. Later on, he'll write volume two of the book of Luke, known as the Acts of the Apostles. And as he writes that account, we see the Holy Spirit moving. We see Luke now coming onto the scene, experiencing what happens among people who know Jesus personally. And the world turns upside down. In this gospel, his point is to get us to a place where we understand fully not only the things we have been taught, but the certainty of them. Why can we be confident? Where can we stand? He is giving us a place to put our feet. When the world gets rocky, when the waters seem to come up over our, our head, we have a place to stand in the Word of God. And Luke is establishing a foundation for us. So we see, then he, he introduces John the Baptist, and, and John is the forerunner of the Messiah. He's making uh, the way straight for the Lord. He's preparing the people. He foretells the coming of Jesus the Christ. We see the story that you're all so familiar with, uh, that we see at Christmas all the time. And then John in, begins his adult ministry. And John is the last of the Old Testament prophets, and he's crying out, repent, the kingdom of God is near. And he tells them, one is coming after me who's not like me. I'm here baptizing you in water to symbolize your repentance, turning from your way to God's way. But another one will come, and he's not going to baptize with water like this. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's going to baptize with the Spirit and fire, and you will be immersed and consumed with God. That's the one that's coming. And then Jesus shows up, and John's like, whoa, 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 what is going on here? This is the Lamb of God, and he's asking me to baptize him. And Jesus says, let this be so now to fulfill righteousness. This is the right thing. And then we see in... in um, in chapter 3, that Jesus is being baptized by John, and the whole, the wholeness, the fullness, all three persons of the Trinity show up at the same time. Jesus, the Son, being baptized in the water to symbolize living for God. God the Father speaking audibly from heaven. Just in case you're wondering, that doesn't happen every day. And God the Father says, this is my Son. Jesus, you are my Son. And with you I'm well pleased. And to confirm this, to seal it, interestingly, the Holy Spirit is a seal for us, a deposit guaranteeing God's promise for us. The Holy Spirit seals this, so to speak, by descending in the form of a dove or what appeared to be like a dove we see all three persons of the Trinity present. And Jesus goes right from there, <coughs> excuse me, in chapter 4, into being tested in the wilderness. And he's confronted directly by Satan. And this represents all the temptations that we face. We're told elsewhere that he faced every temptation just like we do and yet was without sin. Jesus 
had to be without sin, as we'll see in a few weeks. Jesus had to be to take our place. But as he is, <clears throat> excuse me, as he's tested, he combats the lies of the devil with the word of God. How do you combat lies? With truth. When the devil tries to tell you something, he sucks you into bad thinking, he drags you into fear, he drags you into pride, he drags you into greed, or any other sinful attitude, we confront that with the truth of God's word. We renounce the lies of the devil and affirm the truth of God's word. That's what Jesus does here, and the devil is helpless against him. Then he goes to his hometown in Nazareth in chapter 4. And he does some amazing things to demonstrate his authority, but he's rejected in his hometown. So he moves on to Capernaum, and that becomes his headquarters. And we see for the next several chapters, Jesus establishing his authority. He's teaching the Word of God, not like the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law. He's not trapped in an externalism. He's not trapped in a legalism. He is expounding as the author. How cool is that? Let me tell you what the Word of God says because, ask John, he'll tell you in John chapter 1, I am the Word of God. When Jesus teaches, it's a different level of authority. And he backs it up with action. He takes care of the poor. He reaches out to the outcast. He heals lepers. He casts out demons. He does things that regular dudes don't do. So let's bear in mind, no matter what you might see on t-shirts and bumper stickers, Jesus is not, has never been, and never shall be a regular dude. He's not a dude. I'm having an Avengers moment right now. That's not a dude. He is the God-man. Completely different. He shares parables of the kingdom. Jesus continues on the same mission that John began. John prepared the way. Jesus always is bringing the same message. Repent. Turn away from you toward God. Give up doing your thing. Give yourself over to God's thing. Repent. Because the kingdom of God is near. And this theme of the kingdom comes up a lot in Luke. By the time we get to chapter 19, we've seen Jesus talk about this pretty clearly. The people are beginning to grasp that he's the Messiah. Most of the people that he's encountering here, with some obvious notable exceptions, are recognizing him as the promised king, the son of David who would come. That's what we just saw as he enters Jerusalem. The people are praising him. All four Gospels have an account of him entering Jerusalem, being recognized as king. All of them refer, in one form or another in the wording, to this royal lineage, that he is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, that he is the son of David. God's promise to David would be that one from his line would always rule over Israel, would sit on his throne. His, all of the promises of Messiah come through David's line. So the people are getting it, sort of. They're recognizing that he's the king. And right before this, in chapter 19, as Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem, the people think, they believe, they assume that when the Messiah enters Jerusalem, and this is foretold, they're not just reaching and making it up out of nowhere, 
they're coming from the prophecies when the Messiah enters Jerusalem, he will take the throne and he will rule. And Jesus says, yes, but resoundingly no. Not yet. That will happen, but not yet. So he tells a parable that talks about a king, a man of noble birth, who's born to be king, who goes to a distant land to receive the crown, to be crowned king, and he leaves his servants with work to do. But the people that he is rightly meant to rule over don't want him to rule. They reject him. And the servants that he leaves behind gives them gifts to do work with on his behalf. Some of them act faithfully, and some of them do not. And those who do not act faithfully are rejected along with those who have rejected the king. They, they're not outwardly saying, oh, we don't want you to be king. But they're working their own agenda rather than his. The point of his parable is that the kingdom is not here yet. The kingdom is coming. It's inaugurated now. My coming here has demonstrated this. So it is here, but it's not here. And I'm going to go away. And when I come back, we're going to settle accounts. Then we find this story. Jesus comes, and I like the, the heading in the new NIV. It's a little bit better than what you see in some of the other ones. Jesus comes to Jerusalem as king. We often say it's the triumphal entry. I think that really kind of looks beyond this to what we see in his second coming. But here we see him coming, and he's clearly coming as king. His riding on the donkey is a fulfillment of prophecy, demonstrating that he is the king. The people recognize him as king. They shout out that he is the king. But understand, he didn't need their praises to be king. That's our core reality. That's what we want to really get from this today is that my response to King Jesus determines my destiny, not his. My response to King Jesus determines my destiny, not his. The people are shouting, blessed be the king. Do you know he was already king? He didn't need them to crown him. Because the God of all creation had appointed him to be king from the dawn of time, from before time. Jesus is the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And one day, He will return to establish that kingdom. And just as He shared in the parable right before this, He'll settle accounts. And those who serve the kingdom on His behalf, who are on His team, so to speak, belonging to Him, will be richly rewarded, be filled with a never-ending joy, but those who are doing their own thing in this world, I don't want to give up my thing, right? I don't want to give up my comfort. I don't want to lose what I've got. I don't want to give up my status. I don't want to give up my weekend. I don't want to give up my vacation. I don't want to give up my reputation. I don't want to deal with that person. I, it's all about my agenda. Those who work their own agenda are cast out and left with those who rejected him in the first place. And his response when he returns, will be just as we read in Luke 19, 27. Those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. 
Judgment comes. Now is the time of mercy. We'll see that as we work through, so I'll stop talking. As we move through this, there are some things that we observe. All right. So as we look at this, we want to look at the text. We want to see what Luke is saying. What can we actually see? So the first thing that we see is the king's rightful reception. We see the king's rightful reception. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. He's on the road coming down the Mount of Olives, and he's uh, approaching Jerusalem. This has been his goal for the last many chapters. He has set his face to Jerusalem. His purpose is to seek and to save the lost, and he's coming to give himself as a sacrifice. And as he approaches Jerusalem, as he's preparing to enter the city, he receives this praise. The people recognize him as king. He gets this donkey's colt and rides in, and it's a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. See, Israel, your king is coming, gentle and riding on the colt of a donkey. And as he comes, they recognize him. I don't know how many recognize that sign. Many would have. Perhaps many would not. But they praised him for a reason. Why? Why did they praise him? Let's take a look at it. Uh, Take a look at verse, um, verse 37. When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. They're praising him because they had seen miracles. That seems logical, doesn't it? You see this amazing thing done by an amazing man in an amazing way, and you might be, I don't know, amazed. And so they're praising God. This is important. They're praising God, not just praising Jesus. They're not just saying, hey, superstar, we're really happy. This is a big deal. Because we've seen them clamor after him as a rock star for a while. But they are praising God because God is fulfilling his promises to Israel. They don't get it yet. They're not clamoring for Christ as a person. But they're seeing what he did and they're excited about what he will do. The catch is they're confused about what he's going to do. He's going to do it eventually, but it won't be in their lifetime. It's still coming, even now. But they praise Him over these miracles. And then an interesting thing happens. The the Pharisees, they recognize what's going on. And we see this perhaps even more clearly in the other Gospels. uh, Verse 39, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now why would they say that? They're praising God for the miracles. That's not bad. They don't want to stop that. They're not going to be, they'll be upset, but they're not going to be able to have an appeal that, you know, you have a popular guy and they're just praising this popular guy. There's a specific thing that's happening. As they are saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest, Hosanna as it's recorded in the other gospels. The leaders recognize that the people are calling him the chosen one, the Messiah. The praises that they are giving are specific to the promise. They're recognizing Him for who He is, the rightful King of Israel. And that will be a theme through the end of the book now. 
That's going to be what they bring to uh, Pontius Pilate, that he is a threat to Caesar because he's a king. He claims to be the king of Israel. The people are recognizing and shouting for him as the king of Israel. Therefore, you need to watch this insurgent. This guy is a problem. He needs to be put to death. Anybody who supports him is no friend of Caesar's. Interestingly, none of them are either. But they're appealing to that because he's being recognized as king. So why didn't Jesus stop them? Some of the Pharisees are saying, rebuke your disciples. And he says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Now what does that mean? Think about it for just a moment. Jesus is basically saying, I can tell them to be quiet, but the praise can't stop. The glory must be revealed. The king will be recognized. God's anointed one will be exalted. He will be glorified one way or another. And if the people close their mouths, the rocks are going to open theirs. No matter what happens, he will be recognized as king because he is, and it's the appointed time. It was ordained to be this way. It was appropriate. If it wasn't the people, it was going to be the stones because Jesus was destined to receive praise at this time. So what does this tell us about Jesus? Jesus, who always does the will of the Father, He's established Himself as faithful at all times. We know, looking back, we know that He was without sin, that He was completely sinless. In other words, Jesus never did anything that was not perfectly aligned with God's agenda and will. So at no point does Jesus ever allow or receive inappropriate praise. We see him regularly shut up the demons because they recognize him. They say, whoa, you're the son of God. You're the Messiah. And he's like, sit down, shut up. You don't have any place here. You don't get to talk to me. You don't get to praise me. Jesus does not receive praise from demons. He receives appropriate praise. So if he's receiving appropriate praise, if he is doing what God intends for him to do, this tells us that he is king. He is king even when we don't quite get it right. The people didn't understand what he was doing. They didn't understand what it meant for him to be Messiah. They got part of it, but they didn't get all of it. Even his disciples didn't get it. Even those who were close to him, the apostles, didn't get it yet. They'd see more after his resurrection. But at this point, we don't quite get it. That's important for us to recognize as well. Sometimes when we praise God, we may not hit it right. And it doesn't change one darn thing about who he is. When we have false teachings, when we have false beliefs, he is still exactly who he is. If you misunderstand what it means for Jesus to be king, he's still king. It affects us how we think. It does not affect who he is. He's worthy of praise, and he will receive it no matter what. Interestingly, when we see this, we can recognize that it is the Father's joy, the Father's great pleasure to glorify the Son. We saw it in chapter 3 at the baptism. We see it even in Philippians chapter 2. I'm going to have you turn there real quick. Stay in Luke. We'll come back to it. But in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to see the Father's great joy, what pleases Him. 
What a wonderful chapter it is. Paul is writing the letter of Philippians from prison. He's chained to a Roman guard. And yet this is one of the most joy-filled books, if not the most joy-filled book in all of Scripture. Paul is calling to the Philippians to have their same attitude, the same mindset as Jesus Christ as they deal with one another. And he says this, verse 6 and following of chapter 2. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, something to be grasped. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is, this is the Jesus we serve. This is who he is. This is the servant attitude. If we're going to be like him, we need that mindset, that attitude. Check this out in verse 9 and following. Therefore, because of his submission, because of his always being on board with the will of God, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It gives the Father great joy to promote, to glorify the Son. It is the Father's glory for the Son to receive glory. So we see in this praising scene, this that we celebrate at Palm Sunday every year, we see in this the king's rightful reception. We also see right after this the king's compassionate concern. We see the king's compassionate concern. Notice what happens. Now, try to put your mind here, right? Jesus just gets welcomed. How many of you, you know, have been here in June? I think pretty much everybody here. And you've seen the Flag Day Parade, right? And it's this celebration, and it's exuberant, little kids running around grabbing candy. It, it's that kind of a scene that we're seeing here. Only more focused, more reverent, just as jubilant, and more crowded, if you can imagine it. And everybody that sees it and hears it has their interest peaked, even if they weren't initially, because somebody is being hailed by the people as the Messiah. Now, many people have been claimed to be Messiah. But this, this is big. The people are shouting it. Little children are shouting it. <laughs> the Pharisees are ticked off. You got that in mind, right? So he comes in, and the first thing that happens... I should probably turn the page. The first thing that happens after he gets there, verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Jesus wept over the city. Why? He wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. Wait, Jesus, how... How can you say it's hidden from their eyes? The people get it, right? They're celebrating him. They're cheering him. He's immensely popular. This Jesus guy has gone viral. 
But now, he's not excited about it. He's not feeling great. He's not riding high. He's weeping. He's weeping because they don't understand. They don't know what would bring them peace. And he goes on in it to prophesy the doom of Jerusalem. Perhaps he's speaking of the collapse of Jerusalem the, that would take place in A.D. 70 when it would be completely, utterly destroyed. I think at least in part he's referring to that. But it seems bigger. He's referring to the nations surrounding, others encircling. And it seems to be a picture of what will happen later. In either case, he is prophesying the condemnation of his own beloved people in the city of David, bear in mind he's the son of David, coming to Jerusalem to establish his throne forever, not on this trip. The days will come upon you, verse 43, when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Who's entering the city? King Jesus. They're not recognizing that he's more than they thought. He's more than they can imagine. Jesus is God coming to them. Just as, as we saw in the early chapters of Luke, when the angels came and spoke to Zechariah, to Joseph, to Mary... So this is who's coming. God in the flesh. Emmanuel. Here he is. They didn't recognize it. It reminds me, I didn't put this in your program, but it reminds me of 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, when we see that when the Old Testament is read, there's a veil over the eyes of those who belonged to to Israel. When Moses was read, they were veiled, and only when the Spirit takes hold of them by Christ can they have their eyes opened. This is happening in Jerusalem as Jesus enters. But he has this compassionate concern. He weeps because his own people that he loves are blind and lost. He's weeping for those who would reject him and be condemned. Now, not everybody in Jerusalem is that. Several will be with him and will carry out this ministry. They will serve him as he is in a far-off country receiving his crown. But as a whole, his people reject him and will be condemned. They didn't recognize what would bring them true peace. They thought that Messiah coming would overthrow the Romans, and then they'd have peace. The glory of Israel... They were thinking in purely temporal terms or primarily temporal terms. We're challenged in the letters in the New Testament as Paul says in Colossians 3, set your eyes, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Because you died with Christ, you were raised with Christ, you belong to Christ, therefore where Christ is, you are. He is seated in the heavenlies, you are therefore seated in the heavenlies. And your glory comes when He appears in glory. 
This is where true peace is found. In reconciliation with God. They didn't get it. They were still stuck in a temporal view. What does this weeping, what does this compassionate concern tell us about Jesus? Earlier in this chapter, we see what I would consider to be the central verse, the theme verse for this entire book. Luke 19.10. As he tells the people about Zacchaeus today, salvation has come to this house. Verse 10, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He is the King, and He will come to settle accounts, and there will be judgment, and there will be condemnation, but it breaks His heart. That's not the heart of Jesus, because it's not the heart of the Father. We see even in the Old Testament that the Father's heart is compassion, it's mercy, salvation. Ezekiel 33.11 says that he doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. Now we might think that God does when we see all the, the violent, just overwhelmingly harsh judgments that take place in the Old Testament. The death sentences that God issues by his own personal decree. And yet God says, I have no joy in this. My joy, my longing, my heart is for the salvation of the wicked. That they would change, that they would repent, that they would turn from their evil ways and receive the mercy and grace that I so desperately want to pour out on them. And that same heart applies to us because all of our hearts are desperately wicked. Psalm 86.15 says, But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Our God, the Father, the Old Testament picture of God, is already compassionate, longing to bring everyone to salvation. We're told later in the New Testament, man, God's not willing for anybody to perish. His desperate desire is that all would come to repentance. And yet for His glory, there is a separation between those who reject and those who repent. The Father's heart is compassionate. So we see the King's rightful reception. We see His compassionate uh, compassionate concern. Thirdly, we see the King's purifying purpose. We see his purifying purpose. He goes from weeping over the fate of Jerusalem in their blindness. Jerusalem representing all the people of God. He goes from there into the temple. And in verse 45 we see a short account. Again, this is in all of the Gospels in various forms. Luke is a little bit shorter. It's interesting to me. Mark is such a, a shorter book, such a quick hitter. But Mark gives more about this than what Jesus does. I think Mark likes the action. So as this takes place, we read in verse 45, When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. Just so that you have a picture of it. In the outer courts of the temple, you have the, 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 the worship center, if you will, in the inner courts. And then at the at the very center is the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. It's a, it's a bigger 
uh, more permanent version of the tabernacle in the wilderness. God told them how to build the tabernacle. So they built this model. And this is a later temple. This is Herod's temple. And so as, as this rebuilt temple represents the presence of God in the most holy place. As you come out from here, there's the, the area where the sacrifices are offered, and outside of that is a greater gathering place. And in this greater gathering place, as you're entering toward the worship area in the, in the big building of the temple, imagine as you come in the church, perhaps you're in the lobby area, you haven't worked into the sanctuary yet, but you're kind of out in the lobby, and you're preparing to go into worship. And there are people there selling animals to use as sacrifices. Okay, So the, there are prescribed, commanded sacrifices that you must have. But now the people are there turning it into a marketplace. It's not driven by profit. Perhaps it started in an altruistic way. There were people who didn't have these animals at their homes, so they needed to be able to purchase them. I'm sure, I'm sure it started with the best of intentions. But as so often happens in human endeavor, the best of intentions get twisted. The best laid plans of mice and men off go awry. And as now we've gotten to this place where it's a marketing, it's a profit-driven thing, there's price gouging, there, there's no intent of worship, it's a den of robbers, he says. Jesus clears this temple for a few reasons. Notice what he says in verse 46. It is written, he said to them, My house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. He clears the temple, showing his purpose and priorities. The first reason that we see is that it's my house. Jesus demonstrates a zeal to defend holiness and honor, God's holiness and honor. It's prophesied that the Messiah would be overcome with zeal for the house of the Lord. And it reminds me of my brother a little bit. You know, I often think of my brother when I think of Messiah. <clears throat> He's not even here to get these compliments. My brother can tend to be a little territorial. I say my brother because I don't want to say myself, and we kind of go together. He can tend to be a little bit territorial. When, when we're driving past the family farm, which is not our farm, it's our family farm. It's my mom's farm, actually. But we're all part of it. We feel like, we believe, we view it as our farm. It's, it's my farm. And if you see somebody parked along the pasture or pulled out into the, into the field, the first thing that comes into his heart and mind, I know this because it's the same thing that comes into mind, is what are you doing in my driveway? What are you doing in our field? No. Then we go and investigate. We're going to figure this out. Some of you are smirking because you know what I'm talking about, right? Why are you here? And we want to check it out. Jesus has that same connection to the temple. This is my house. This is my father's house, and it's my house because I'm the son and he's the father. You will not defile my father's house. If you come to my mom's farm and you stand in the driveway and you drop the F-bomb, guess what? We're going to have words. We're going to have a confrontation because you don't do that on this farm. You don't come and defile it. So when you come into the 
house of the Lord here, not the temple, but you come into the church and you disrespect God, every one of us should be offended by that. Don't defile my father's house. Jesus has the zeal of the Lord that comes up in him over his father's house. So we see that personal connection. Second, we see that, that this is a house of prayer. My house will be a house of prayer. Interestingly, Mark records the prophecy more fully. I would expect Luke 2, and it's interesting to me. I, don't, I have not found the significance or if there is a significance to it. But Luke doesn't say what Mark does. Mark says, my house will be a house of prayer for all the nations. I expect that from Luke. He tends to point out the Gentiles a lot, being one. He focuses a lot on the outcast, the outsider, the non-Jew, the non you know, the, the wrong side of the tracks, focuses on the women, focuses on the foreigners, all the people who might be rejected in cool society back then. Luke focuses. But here he doesn't. I don't know why. But Mark does. And we see that my house will be a house of prayer. So it's not just to defend the holiness and honor of the family, not just to defend the holiness of and honor of my house, but to defend the purity of worship. Jesus has a zeal to defend the purity of God's worship. You are defiling what is meant to be a house of prayer, a place where you come before the Lord. You can't even go into the Holy of Holies where God's presence manifests itself. Only the high priest, and only once a year, and only with a sacrifice for sin for himself and then for the whole nation before he could ever enter it. And if you enter it with the wrong attitude, the God himself strikes you dead. This is not a thing to be taken lightly. And Jesus sees all these people like, you do not get it. You don't understand what this worship is supposed to be. He has a zeal for defending the purity of worship. Thirdly, we see that it's turned into a den of robbers. My house will be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a den of robbers. He has a zeal to defend justice for the outcast. This idea of, of selling doves for the poor to make their sacrifice, that's great. Until you start gouging them, now you're not helping the poor, you're hurting them. You're taking advantage of them. That's not the Father's heart. This shows us Christ's passion to defend God's holy standard. We live in a time when we act like Jesus has removed the standards. We think Jesus just said, oh, all the rules are off. You know, I died on the cross for you, so hey, do what you want. Live however you feel like living. I just want you to be happy. But that's not the picture that we get here or anywhere else in Scripture. God's primary concern is not my happiness. It's my holiness. Will I be set apart for Him? Will I belong to Him? Not will I have my best life now. Not will I get the right car or the right job. Not will I have the, the coolest vacation and the most followers on Instagram. That's not His concern. His concern is, will you be holy? That's the passion, the purpose, the priority of Christ. The Father's expectation is holiness. It's righteousness, clean hands, and a pure heart. 
I'm getting, getting way past my time here, and I want to get, make sure that we get through how we need to respond. We see the story. Hopefully we understand the story now. We see that Christ is acting as king regardless of what happens. So right after that, uh, that purging of the temple, the Pharisees, they're looking to kill him. They can't kill him because he's too popular. He's not hiding. He's not hiding. So you let the Pharisees know, I'll be right here every day, teaching in the temple, teaching in the public place, not hedging, not hiding, not running away. Here's the truth of God. Take it. Be impacted. Be confronted. Elsewhere, he says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. The truth divides. And as Jesus brings the sword of truth to divide, the Pharisees hate him. As we read the other accounts in the Gospels, it seems clear that this was a real tipping point. They, Luke's been saying they've been trying to kill him for a while. They've been looking for a way to get rid of him. Well, now it's over the top. You cut into our money. You cut into our profit. You cut into our, 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 our status quo and we got to get rid of this guy. But they can't because everybody is clamoring for him. Everybody loves Jesus at this time. Interestingly, we know the story. We know that just in another four chapters here, they're going to be shouting, crucify him. The crowds will turn against him because he isn't what they expected. He's different. We need to respond to this. How do we do it? There are three key ways that we need to respond. First off, we need to recognize the person of Jesus. We need to recognize the person of Jesus. The crowds are clamoring for Him. They see Him doing these miracles. They love the blessing. They want more of their sick to be healed. They want more of the great things. They, they want Rome to be overthrown. And so we see Him coming. He's already told them this is not the time. But they're still hooked on that, so they think he's going to take the throne and overthrow Rome. We need to recognize the person of Jesus, not just his power or his blessings, but himself, who he actually is. The key concept here is relationship. If we're going to recognize the person of Christ, the person of Jesus, the key concept is relationship, not just religion and worship they recognized him as Messiah, but they wanted the role of Messiah. They wanted the benefits of Messiah. They weren't looking for the person of Messiah. Jesus was offering a path to peace with a relationship with God. He himself is what will bring them peace. That's not the peace they want. They want something else. We can't allow ourselves to fall into that trap. So often in our world, we've been sold this prosperity gospel. Come to Jesus because it'll make stuff better. It'll give you a better marriage. It'll make your kids turn out better. You'll, you'll never have bad breath again. You won't get gout. You'll drive better. All of these things. So if you come to Jesus, you'll be healthy and wealthy and wise. That's not what this is. If you're coming for that, then you're just like the crowds here. You want the stuff, not the person. If you want true peace with God, you need to recognize the person. And beyond that, we need also to receive the provision of Jesus. When we recognize who He is, 
and we see the beauty that is Jesus, we need to receive the provision that he offers us. This is what Jerusalem missed out on. This is why he wept. Because he came to seek and save the lost. Not to give you a, a, a better kingdom of getting rid of Rome. You don't need to get rid of the bondage of earthly slavery as much as you need to get rid of the bondage of sin. You need to get the eternal freedom of peace with God. The provision is Jesus. His sacrifice saves us. His spirit empowers and sanctifies us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. I want to make sure you get the gravity of this. Jesus came and had no sin. No penalty was due. The only person in human history from whom no penalty was due. He owed nothing. But for us, he gave everything. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that when Jesus died on the cross, my sin died with him. We need to receive that provision. He knew no sin. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. John 1.12 says that anyone who receives him, it's those people he gives the right to become children of the living God. But we have to receive the provision. The key concept here is redemption. Redemption, the buying back of one who is lost. When Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, he did so by redeeming us, by giving his life for us. It's not about trying to check a bunch of boxes to muster up enough faith so that I look better, so that I can deal with all of my struggles. Those are byproducts. Those are things that come afterwards. The provision of God for our sin is Christ on the cross and raised from the dead. That is the redemption, the paying of our penalty. Theologians call that a substitutionary atonement. Paying the price for our sin in our place as a substitute. We recognize the person of Jesus, receive the provision of Jesus, and when this has happened in our lives, and our identity is now changed, we've been, in Christ's words, born again, then we are to reflect the priorities of Jesus. Recognize the person of Jesus, receive the provision of Jesus, reflect the priorities of Jesus. The glory of God and the good of His people is the priorities that we see in Christ's life here. As, as Jesus clears that temple out, He is defending the glory of God. In everything that He does, he is shining the spotlight on the Father. And the Father is shining the spotlight on Him. He's defending the glory of God, and He's doing it also for the good of the people. He is defending mercy and justice. The key concept here is righteousness. The key concept is righteousness. If we're going to reflect the priorities of Jesus... And if you don't reflect the priorities of Jesus, note this, you have not taken hold of the provision. 
He became sin for us that we might become the, the righteousness of God. So if we're going to receive Him and be God's children, be saved, then we must be in our experience, progressively, not perfectly, we must be becoming more and more like Him in His righteousness. He has made us His righteousness. Now we need to shine that out. We need to reflect that. If you're not reflecting the priorities of Jesus, if you're still living by your own agenda, your own priorities, then you don't know Him. Jesus makes that very clear. If you love me, obey my commands. Do what I say. If we want to live, if we want to love like Jesus and live like Jesus, it's the only way that we can live with Jesus forever. As we wrap this up, there are two things we need to look at. What do, what do I have to do to be saved? What do, I, what do I have to do to get in? Because we're seeing groups of people here that are, are, we have a mixed crowd where some are going to be saved and some are not. We have the leaders who see him, they recognize that they're talking about him as Messiah, but they're rejecting him. They're not saved. They're condemned. How do we become not the person that Jesus weeps over, but the person that Jesus welcomes with open arms and says, you are mine. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. How do we become that? Pretty simple. Believe and confess. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says that if, if we will confess with our mouths or profess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, in other words, He's running my show. I'm, I'm not doing this. It's not my priority anymore. It's His. He is my Lord. He is my boss. I am surrendering and submitting to Him as King. He's already King. I want Him to be my King. That's what it means when it says profess Him as Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. I have to take hold of this by faith. It's by grace, God offering him, that we're saved. And I take hold of that by faith, which even the faith comes from God. That's how we're saved. If you're not 100% certain that you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ that will save you from condemnation, you can be. You can be absolutely certain because it's not based on you. It's based on Him. His goodness, His faithfulness, His perfection. If it were up to you and me, none of us would be saved. None of us are that good. But God, that's the best beginning of every story, right? But God, He reaches in and He takes our stone heart out and gives us a new heart of flesh that responds to Him. And our desires begin to change. Our struggles are still there, but we don't want that life anymore. We want Him because we've been reborn. Now, if I've been saved, then what? <laughs> I, I love the way Alistair Begg approaches the sermon. His, his whole thinking as he's studying a passage is what? What does it say? Right? And so what? What does it mean? And ultimately, now what? What do I need to do about it? If you've been saved, if you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, now what? What does righteousness look like in my world? John 14, 15 says, obey. It's real simple. 
If you love me, obey my commands. Read God's word. Do what you read. That's pretty straightforward. Galatians 5.16 says that if we live by the Spirit, we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Consequently, if we live by the flesh, then we are not going to be following what God wants. We're not living by the Spirit. The two things are in conflict. They're in contrast, like light and darkness. But if I give myself to Him and I follow the Spirit guiding me through the Word of God, I won't gratify as a rule, as my default, I won't gratify the desires of the flesh. It won't be as appealing to me all the things that dragged me down before. And it isn't really a sacrifice because that's what I was trying to escape from in the first place. But I have to let go of all of the flesh part and live by the Spirit. I need to obey. I need to live by the Spirit. And <laughs> in, uh, in Micah 6, 8, we're told that God calls us to love mercy and to walk justly. Right? We need to, we need to love mercy if we're going to be in the righteousness of God. Loving mercy looks a lot like James 1.27. To care for the widow and orphan. He said pure religion that God accepts that he likes, that he wants, that pleases God. Any other religion displeases God, no matter how right your doctrine is, is the kind that takes care of people who need taken care of. You need to love people enough to go out of your way to sacrifice, to help others. Am I doing that? One last scripture. This will be where we end. Well over time, but I want to be able to, to get this in. Turn, if you would, toward the back of the book. If you get to Revelation, you went too far. They get real skinny back here. You're looking for 1 John. Past Hebrews, past James, past Peter's letters. Not quite to Jude. But realistically, you probably flip right past 2 John, 3 John, and Jude anyway and get right into Revelation. 1 John, we're looking at chapter 3. Starting with verse 1, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. That's important. Notice, he's writing to the children of God. This isn't to the world. This is to those of us who belong to Christ. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. And, and that is what we are. We're children of God. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. We're not done yet. We're still, we're still baking. What we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him. I can't wait for that day. For we shall see Him as He is. All who have this hope in Him purify themselves just as He is pure. John is writing here to believers to tell us how to live, to give us assurance in the truth, that we might live in response to that truth. All those who have this hope in Him 
purify themselves just as He is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins. And in Him is no sin. No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. That is, as a defining characteristic of their life. We all stumble, but it's no longer our path. It's no longer our direction. Now when we stumble, we get up and we turn back to Him again. No one who lives in Him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin in this way has either seen Him or known Him. Dear children, don't let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as He is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they've been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child. Nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Don't be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. In other words, he got mad because he had sin in his own heart. Don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in His presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and receive from Him anything we ask, because we keep His commands and do what pleases Him. This is His command, to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as He commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in Him, and He in them. And this is how we know that He lives in us. We know it by the Spirit He gave us. As we read in Philippians 2, one day all of us will surrender to the kingship of Christ. Those who do it now with joy find life and peace. Those who do not will do it, but they'll do it with weeping and gnashing of teeth. My response to King Jesus determines my destiny, not His. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your spirit. That you have purchased us back from the dead. And that you have raised us with Christ and given us a new life, a resurrection life in him, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, whether we receive Jesus or not, does not diminish His authority one iota. It does not in any way take away from Your glory. Indeed, in some way it enhances it.
But Father, we don't want to be outsiders. We don't want to be those who are condemned, who are rejected. The last thing we want is to be religious fools who think we have a relationship because we keep some external things. We might look better than others in some silly comparison. But Father, we ask that you would make us aware, open our eyes, remove the veil that Jerusalem had as Jesus entered. Allow us to recognize who Jesus is, to receive the provision that he made for us, that we might have life. And in so doing, Lord, help us to reflect the priorities of Jesus as we live for you, to reflect the reality of Christ in the relationships you give us. Now, Lord, as you are king over all, be king in us. Reign in us, Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen.